This morning, we're going to take a look at probably, well, not even probably, the most glorious event that we anticipate and look forward to. When Christ walked the earth, he was fully veiled. He came, as Philippians says, in humility, came as a human, as a man, fully human, unrecognizable in terms of deity. All of that was veiled. He's fully God. He didn't lose deity at all. That's what Philippians indicates to us. But it was veiled such that people could not recognize him. When he returns, he will come in full glory. The full deity of Christ will be on display. And one of the central passages of all the New Testament, of all the Bible... It is a passage we're going to look at this morning that describes that very, very dramatic, spectacular event. So we have looked at a long introduction, the setting, and it takes place with the disciples, not so much on the Mount of Olives, but uh, somewhat probably maybe halfway down where they could see Temple Mount mentioned last time this photograph is taken very close to the hotel that we'll be staying on, those that are on the trip. So that's the site that you'll look at as you get up every morning that we're in Jerusalem. Similar location, Mount of Olives. So the setting of uh, the book, chapter 21 through the beginning of chapter 24, we spend a lot of time on a period of time that follows the church age, and I believe our theology is correct, and if so, then we will not experience that period of time. But God has given it to us. In fact, he's given us all of Bible prophecy to give us perspectives. Now, when we come back after the break this summer and look at the Olivet Discourse, much of the rest of the passage in, in chapter 25 is mainly applicational. In other words, how do we take the truths that we've been looking at and what should our attitude be? What should our perspective be? What should our actions that should follow from the Olivet Discourse? And what Jesus does is he gives a series of parables that are intended to give us that perspective. So these are not just facts, not just concepts that he's delivering to us, but they're intended to have an impact and intended to have application as well. So this horrendous period of time, there's a lot of reasons for it, so that we know, for one thing, what God has in store for the world should give us a sense of urgency, because we don't want any unbeliever to experience what the world's going to experience during that period of time. And particularly Jewish people, if we could rescue them out, it's going to be particularly difficult for them. Even though that is a time that God will bring the nation of Israel to their knees, essentially, in order that they would trust in him as their Messiah, as they are still hoping, at least some of them are hoping to, uh, to experience. So, tribulation, verses 4 through 28, and a little short paragraph, the second coming, verses 29 through 31. We won't complete that this morning, but I intend to complete it next week, Lord willing, hopefully. So that's where we're at this morning. I mentioned last time, just by way of introduction, a good insight that Lewis Berry Chafer, by the way, 
Chaper Seminary is named after Lewis Berry. He says the following, The second coming has the unique distinction of being the first prophecy uttered. And last week some of you mentioned and remembered where that's located. That's Jude. Refers back to Enoch predicting for the first time a, not so much a second coming, but a coming of a messianic figure. And from the perspective of 21st century, it would be the second coming of Christ. Kind of. Enoch uttered it in was that a side book? No. I don't know how, how Jude knew about it, but it does, that's a good question, but it does give us insight and tells us there was more revelation, for example, that Abraham had than what is recorded in the Old Testament and that is not necessarily inspired, but it was it was revelation all the same, and it may have been uh, inspired for Abraham, in other words, it was inerrant, and Noah and others. So there's, there's much more that I think was revealed. You get a sense of that when you read portions, particularly of Genesis as well. It seemed like Abraham had far more understanding than what is recorded for him in, in the book of Genesis. And this would be an example of one of those types of pieces of, of data. And there's a lot more writings as well. Jewish writings, a lot of it we've lost because it's not inspired in the canon of Scripture, if you will. So apparently Jude was aware, unless he received that by divine revelation as well. Does that make sense? We don't know. Yeah, it's a possibility. That's why the possibility of two options. God may have revealed that to him through inspiration, and or he could have received it through ancient writings. Yeah, very good question. Remember, there's lots of, for example, Paul wrote other books as well. He refers to a letter that he wrote to the Laodiceans at the very end of Second Thessalonians, and he encouraged the Thessalonians to read it and to send Second uh, Thessalonians to the Laodicean church. So there's a lot of writings that are that were not included in the canon of scripture because they were not inspired in in the biblical sense that they would be for all future generations. Does that make sense? So he says the second coming is the unique distinction of being the first prophecy uttered by man. And then somebody else pointed out there's a, another one that even precedes that that we do have in scripture. Remember that one? Uh, Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman is a messianic personage. Now, it's hard to get it from 3.15, but from the rest of Scripture, we can draw that conclusion. First prophecy uttered by man, and the last message from the ascended Christ. That's in Acts 1.11, as well as being the last word of the Bible. The last two verses there refer basically to second coming. He also says the greatest theme of the Bible is also the central theme of prophecy. So this is what we're going to look at this morning. The central theme is the coming of a messianic personage that basically solves the issue of evil. And you might even view world history from that big perspective, that broad perspective 
All of world history is God working out in time his dealing with evil. Does that make sense? And Christ ultimately deals with evil and it will not be completed until the end of world history. Because we still have an expression of evil at the end of the millennial kingdom. And it's at that point that evil is dealt with in an ultimate and in a final sense. That just reminds me, this is kind of off, well, not really off, but it's, I didn't intend to bring this up, but it's an important concept. You and I that have a biblical worldview, we are the only ones that have a proper concept of evil. If you just think about it, the rest of the culture, the unbelieving worldview, other religions, other philosophies, when it comes to the issue of evil, evil just exists. From that other perspective, other than a world, biblical worldview, evil is just part of existence. Didn't have a beginning, doesn't have an end, it's just there. It's only the biblical worldview that we would describe evil as being bounded. What do we mean by evil being bounded? Has a beginning and it has a culmination, you might say. Now, it's going to be isolated in the lake of fire and it'll end for those that spend eternity with, with God. And it's only the biblical worldview that we can say that it is bounded and part of it being bounded is God is sovereign over it and God deals with it in a final and ultimate way. No other philosophy, no other religion deals with evil in that biblical way. It's only the Bible. So we can add that as well. And part of the final dealing with it is when Messiah returns. And what is he going to do during the millennial kingdom? He's going to rule over the world with a rod of iron. He's going to deal with evil. He's going to deal with justice. All the issues related to evil. And then he's going to bring it to a very uh, final conclusion at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. So all of history is a record of God dealing with evil and allowing it to manifest itself so we are convinced of the evilness of evil and the sinfulness of sin and the depravity of man. It's the only explanation for that final battle at the end of the millennial kingdom. Um, yeah, that kind of ties into what I've been reading, that I've been reading some arguments why would a loving God punish people forever. And it's not until you realize how holy God is and how depraved we are Absolutely. that the offense that is given is given in relationship to the greatness of the person. And so God is... With that perspective, God is perfectly valid. Just. just in his yes. continued. Just uh, and righteous. Yes, in his continued punishment of sinners who have rejected his grace and mercy because, because the sin is so depraved before him. And, and in our current culture, we lose sight of that. We try to reason it out. Well, it wasn't that bad. Right. And in our, in our own, even regenerated hearts, we still have depraved nature, and in that depraved nature, we still minimize sin. Yes. And God is demonstrating through history the horrendousness, the horribleness, the evilness of sin. So, setting, tribulation, second coming, 
I've broken that down into three parts. We looked at verse 29. We didn't quite complete that, so we'll complete that this morning, where we have gigantic disturbances. If you haven't already figured out, the G is my alliterative key there. And it gives us the time frame, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation. Could Jesus be any clearer? So, the millennial kingdom, the beginning, or the beginning of it with the second coming, occurs after that horrendous period of time. So, he is the one that will end the tribulation with his coming. So, it takes place immediately after the tribulation. We looked at that in some detail last time. Just to review, we've already seen verses 4 through 14 probably describes the first three and a half years. Now, it's not so clear in the Olivet Discourse, but if you look at the parallel passages in the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, Daniel pinpoints a seven-year period of time. This is divided in half. Three and a half years, three and a half years. Jesus uses the phrase beginning of birth pangs. Probably describes that first three and a half. Then there's a significant event that takes place in the middle. That's verse 15. Jesus describes it as the abomination of desolation. And that kicks off the last three and a half years that Jesus describes as great tribulation. And that's verses 15 through 28 that we completed a couple of weeks ago. So the last three and a half. You might notice that the Alabet Discourse as well as the book of Revelation, seems to fit this chronology, fit this in broad strokes, at least. Because immediately after verse 28, what do we have there? And don't say verse 29. (laughs) We have the second coming, or the description of the second coming, which is in verses 29 through 31. Juliana. I missed a couple of Sundays, so let me want to go back. The three days of darkness, we're, okay, so we're going to be raptured, hopefully two people will be on the field, we'll take a few No, 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 that's not a, that is not, that's not a description of the rapture. Okay, I'm not trying to describe the rapture, I'm just asking if we're going to be here or not before the three days of darkness and the turning red. No. To what? We will not be here during the tribulation period. Okay. So we'll right. be... Yeah, we'll talk about the passage you're alluding to as well. Actually, we did last week a little bit. So that's kind of the broad outline of that period of time, and now we're looking at the second coming, which the text tells us immediately after that period of time. And I've, I've been stressing, this is a very significant period of time. There's a lot of scriptures that parallel it and make it more specific, particularly Daniel chapter 9, which is very specific. It's a particular period of time. So I I, I believe that it fits with these other passages. And the book of Revelation, it parallels several things there as well. And we ended with the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and I take that materially, if you will, or scientifically. We said that probably what's taking place here are forces, powers, if you will. In other words, natural laws of nature are going to be shaken. They're going to be disturbed. They're going to be tweaked, even, in a massive way. Now, what's described before are very cataclysmic events. 
And it almost seems like what God's going to do is black out everything. And in that blacked out background, his glorious coming is going to be spectacular in such a way that we cannot even describe or even imagine. So let's look at primarily some of the parallel passages. That's where we ended last time. In terms of the second coming, we have several passages that I think parallel what is described by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. In fact, I think Jesus is alluding, and in some cases even quoting portions of those passages. Because they are parallel, and if so, then they put us within a particular time frame. For example, we looked at, uh, did we? We looked up Isaiah 13, right? Now, I mentioned, now somebody look up Joel 2, and I'll have you, okay? Kathy, somebody look up Revelation, Juliana's got Revelation 6. Now, Isaiah 13, and not just 9 and 10, those are the verses that we read last time, but the whole context deals with the judgment of Babylon. Now, as we've seen, Bible scholars disagree as to when these are fulfilled, but I think if you put them in the context of everything else, and particularly the Olivet Discourse, I think Jesus gives us a clue as to when Isaiah 13 takes place. And if you take the passage literally, Isaiah 13 has never been fulfilled in terms of uh, Babylon. Now, some scholars would say that it was fulfilled in the Old Testament, 549, when the Babylonian Empire was destroyed by the Medo-Persians. But you have to stretch the language in order to come to that fulfillment, and parts of it just don't fit. I think the better fulfillment parallels, I don't have uh, Revelation 17 and 18 up there, but it would parallel the description of the destruction of Babylon that the book of Revelation describes in chapters 17 and 18. That's the ultimate destruction of Babylon, which implies there's going to be a revived Babylonian-like empire during this seven-year period, headed by a beastly personality like Nebuchadnezzar that is anti-Semitic. So what you have is kind of a foreview, if you will, in the ancient Babylonian empire of what God is going to do at the very end. And then in that context of Isaiah 13, he describes the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light. Very similar to what Jesus is saying. And I think that's the clue that we're talking about the same time frame. And Revelation 17 and 18 is at the very end of this seven-year period of time. Because chapter 19 is a description of the second coming. So there's clear parallels, I think. You had a... Did I answer your... I'm just wondering if some of us don't make it through. The only ones that make it are those that are genuinely believing in Jesus Christ. No, but if we don't make it, we still have an opportunity. So if we go through the three days of darkness and all that... You mean the three and a half years of tribulation? Well, well, yeah, the three years of tribulation, but that's part of it. The three Mm. days of darkness and the moon and all that. What can you offer the people that stay behind... If they don't make it... Then if they don't make it, there's going to be the, the, the greatest revival that the world has ever seen. We talked about that as well. 
So there will be an opportunity to trust in Jesus Is Christ. Is that where the 164 saints will still be on earth to yes. help them Right, out? right. Yeah, they will be a major instrument in that revival. Exactly. Who's got Joel? 2.10, first of all. For the rightness. Okay. Now, in the context, he keeps referring to the day of the Lord. Now, Joel also is describing a locust plague that took place historically, and then he transitions to things that never took place historically. And I think this is part of it, verse 10. Now, hang on to that, because I want you to read verse 30 and 31. But in that overall context, he begins to talk about the day of the Lord. Prophetically, and in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord looks forward to this time related to what we look at as the second coming. From the Old Testament perspective, the day of the Lord was when the Messiah arrives. Now, because of what happened in the New Testament, we see that when Messiah arrived, there's two phases of it, two stages of it, a first coming and a second coming. And I think Joel ultimately is referring to the same thing that Jesus is referring to, or Jesus is actually pulling the passage out of Joel to describe what he describes in the Olivet Discourse. And then notice in 30 and 31. In the sky. There you go. Wonders in the sky. Keep reading. Fire and columns of smoke. Blood. For the great awesome day comes. Okay, the great and awesome, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And this is verse 29. That's what Jesus is describing. That awesome day is described in verse 30. So I see very clear parallels with what Joel predicted, and I think they all take place, I mean, they're all referring to the same series of events, if you will. Connie? So you go on to verse, and then it shall come to pass that the Lord shall be saved. Exactly. In that time frame. Exactly. Very good, Connie. Oh, Juliana. <laughs> Revelation 6, 12, and 13. Now, I've mentioned... As we've been looking at the Olivet Discourse, I think chapter 6 gives us kind of a panoramic view of that that whole seven years. And the reason I think that is because of the context of this verse. In other words, this verse seems to be describing the same thing that takes place at the very end. And it parallels the same as Isaiah 13, Joel 2, and what Jesus is describing in the Olivet Discourse. You want to read it? I watched as he broke the sixth seal, and there was a vast earthquake, and the sun dark like black cloth, and the moon was blood red. Then the stars of heaven appeared to be falling to earth, like green fruit from fig trees, buffeted by mighty winds. Do you see the same three phenomenon? Actually, all uh, four, actually. Sun not darkened, the moon affected as well, not giving its light, and stars from heaven falling. Exactly what Jesus is saying in the Olivet Discourse. So I, I think they're all describing the same event. Too uh, similar, if you will, or identical, you might even say. So that's the gigantic disturbances, which is the backdrop and kind of the blackness that's going to emphasize the glorious appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 30. So let's take a look at it 
And then, and remember I said in Matthew, this is a key word. The word then is that Greek word tote. And it's, it's Matthew's favorite word, the kind of transition from one event. He's just moving chronologically usually or sequentially from one event to another event to another event. So immediately after this, then this, then this, then this. So after the stars are falling from the heavens and the powers are shaken, the sun is darkened, etc., then the sign of the Son of Man will appear. You see that? He's given us a context here, kind of a time frame. In Mark's Gospel, Mark uses the word, the kind of transition from miracle to ministry to different things. He used the word immediately. Matthew uses the word then. And it occurs several times in the Olivet Discourse. And even particularly in verse 29 and 30 here. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear. So let's take a look at this sign. What is he talking about? First of all, we've already seen several clear signs from the Olivet Discourse and some that Jesus doesn't even mention. Can anyone suggest maybe what might be the first sign? Now, this one is not in the Olivet Discourse. The first one I have on the, or I will flash on the screen there. See if I can get you to think of what what is the next major event that would be a sign for people on earth? I'm talking preceding the second coming. The visible, glorious second coming. It's not a trick question. Very good. Who said rapture? All right. Yeah, I think that would be a, a sign for at least those people that are related to the, the believers that are taken. Because they're going to disappear. Masses of people. Well, maybe not so many. Who knows? <laughs> May not be very many. People are raptured. Now, that one is not in the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse does not describe the rapture of the church. Now, we speak of the rapture as the next prophetic event. It's not on a Jewish calendar because the church age is not in Jewish eschatology. Paul describes it as a mystery. In other words, a mystery is something that's not revealed in the Old Testament. The church is not in the Old Testament. The church is not equal to Israel. Two separate, distinct entities, if you will. When we speak of the rapture, we speak of the imminent occurrence of the rapture. And what we mean by that, it could have taken place in the first century. In other words, the time is not revealed. When you think in terms of chronology and time, you have to think Jewish. The Jewish calendar has a time frame. Prophetic events in the church do not have a time frame. So the rapture is imminent in that it could take place at any time. And we are not to set dates. Alright? In fact, Jesus warns that in the Olivet Discourse, even concerning his second coming, but particularly the rapture. The rapture is imminent in that uh, it does not have any signs preceding it. It's the second coming that has signs. And probably... Maybe a secondary one is the rapture of the church, the disappearance of believers in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? There's another one that occurs that's not mentioned in the Olivet Discourse. I think it's uh, implied because of the time frame, and that would be what? 
the event that kicks off the seven years, which is the covenant. It's not explicitly mentioned, but it's probably implied in the Olivet Discourse, the signing of the covenant. And those that would know Daniel, primarily Jewish people, when they saw this happen, they would be alerted. Uh-oh, Daniel's 70th week is upon us. That period of time that is very horrendous. So you're saying now, that rapture is just a precursor of the actual thing. It's a phase of the second coming. It's And I'm going to contrast that. In fact, on your outline sheet, I'm going to contrast the rapture and the second coming to make a distinction between the two. If you put all of the scriptures together that describe the rapture, put all the scriptures together that describe the visible, glorious second coming, there seems to be a distinction, and I'm going to do that for you. The covenant is the covenant with Antichrist. This is the covenant with Antichrist that Israel, under deception, enters into. Now, what's what are some of the major signs that we've already looked at? in the Olivet Discourse. So, the point I'm making is Jesus has already answered the disciples' question concerning what will be the sign of your coming, and now, in verse 30, he's going to give an ultimate sign that is unmistakable. Any suggestions here? Wars Wars and rumors, or we might even uh, precede that with Christ and false Christ. So, when you have the appearance of an abundance of false messiahs, during that seven-year period of time, after the signing of the covenant. Then you have a lot of geopolitical events that uh, some of you just mentioned, the geopolitical natural disasters, along with uh, man-made disasters as a result of wars and rumors of wars, that sort of thing. So he's given some of these political or geopolitical events. And what is the probably the, the, the most striking, if you will, event that takes place during that period of time that would be a sign to them because Daniel predicts it. Yes, the abomination of desolation that Jesus identifies and he ties it back to Daniel. Ties it to Daniel's 70th week. So, the abomination of desolation in verse 15. So, he has already laid out significant signs, if you will, And then in the passage, now he's talking about the sign that appears in the heavens. And again, and and this is not so important, but there's all kinds of views as to what that sign is. Kind of a favorite one of some of the church fathers. Way early in church history, they thought that perhaps Jesus would display a sign of the cross in the heavens. Now, there's no real biblical evidence for for something like that, so I don't put much credit into that. Another one thought that maybe Jesus would display his flag. No, well, what is his flag? We don't know. There's no biblical evidence for that one. But that occurs historically. Some have said that the New Jerusalem that's described later in Revelation chapter 21 is just suspended over the earth as a sign. Again, no evidence for it, other than just a reference in Revelation 21, but it doesn't seem to relate chronologically. Now, this is probably one of the better suggestions, and this is a possibility. Remember, in terms of Israel, basically Israel's history ended, if you will, at least temporarily, when? 
when the glory departed the temple, and then shortly after God destroyed the city and the temple. But in Ezekiel, Ezekiel gives us a picture of God departing from his people, from his temple, and in the Old Testament, that glorious, visible manifestation of God is called the Shekinah glory. So it does make sense, and I would think that that's at least part of the sign, is a return of the Shekinah glory that Jewish people would have been at least familiar from Scripture, that glory that appeared in the temple, when Solomon built the temple that displayed the glory of God in the tabernacle as well, that Shekinah glorious appearance. Now, remember, God is omnipresent, so you can't isolate God in any building. Even Solomon understood that. So the Shekinah glory is just a manifestation, in other words, a visible manifestation of the presence of God, even though you cannot contain God because he's omnipresent. Mary Lee. That glory just be then in the temple because we know that the abomination of desolation had desecrated the temple. So the Shekinah glory returns... It would not be in the temple. It would, the temple. And Jesus says it's in the, in the sky. Yeah, That's a very good suggestion. And it may be a combination of this one and the next one, but I think ultimately it would be the coming of Christ himself. Sure. 1911 says... 19 of what? Revelation. Okay. Then I saw heaven opened. Yes. And a white horse... Standing there, and the one sitting on the horse was named Faithful and True. That's the same description in more detail as what we have that Jesus gives in the Olivet Discourse. Now, Revelation 19 is another description of the same event, same person, same occasion. And it gives a little bit more detail in Revelation. Okay? So, I think the sign is at least the Shekinah glory and perhaps just a visible display that unmistakably this is the Messiah. This is Jesus himself. And probably on a white horse as described in the book of Revelation. David? King of kings, Lord of lords. That's the Messiah. King of kings, Lord of lords. Yep, exactly. So, just to kind of summarize, some of the things that we've seen in the passage and preceding the passage, remember we even looked at some passages before verse 29 that described Christ's coming, and in contrast, we saw that it's going to be sudden, unexpected, like a lightning bolt. It's going to be spectacular with the backdrop of darkness. The universe is going to be darkened. And now you have this blinding light that you're not even going to be able to stare at, probably worse than staring at the sun. Spectacular, visible. It's going to appear, is the word in the text. Sign appearing. It's going to be bodily. You're going to see Jesus in his glorified body. In Revelation 19, on a white horse and perhaps a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, as is described in Revelation 19. With clothing, mentions garments and blood on them, 
Now, by the way, the blood, some suggest, some scholars that's described in the book of Revelation there, is as a result of ending the battle of Armageddon, which takes place in the time, same time frame. So it's bodily. Now, it could also be a, a reminder of the shed blood. So that's also a possibility. So it's bodily. Very important. We believe in a bodily resurrection. We believe in a bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is going to restore a physical realm and transform it into something that is different from what we experience here and now. The whole creation is going to be transformed. So we believe in a bodily return of Jesus Christ. It's going to be public. It's a public return. It comes publicly. No eye is going to miss it. We'll see that in the passage. And here you go. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now what's going on there? Where does that come from? They didn't believe it. Who didn't believe it? At first. Here it is. Right, here it is. Full view. Right. I think a couple of things might be in view in there, and I think there's an allusion to a couple of Old Testament passages, and I think we also have some allusions also in, in the book of Revelation or some parallels. So all the tribes of the earth will mourn. I think in this context, when it's talking about all, it is pretty universal. It is universal. There's not going to be a, a single person on the face of the earth that's going to miss the second coming. You don't have to go to the wilderness. You don't have to go into the inner room. Remember the passages we looked at before? Uh, he's he's going to be evident. Those passages were meant to contrast this visible, spectacular, sudden return of the Messiah. Well, this morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, I think could have a couple things in view. Do you think, who do you think is in view? Let me ask you the question. Unbelievers? Yeah, and some suggest unbelieving Jews. Some suggest unbelievers in general. Let's look up a couple of passages. Somebody look up Revelation. You got it, Juliana? There's also another possibility. What's another possibility while she's looking that one up? Besides the despair of unbelievers, Satan and all those guys? Uh, yeah, they'll still be around. Uh, I'm not sure that's in view. Probably. <laughs> Possibly believer, and that's a good suggestion. I hadn't thought of that, but believers that see their unbelievers that uh, are not going to participate in the future. But I think also there's going to be an awakening among Israelites and realize their past rejection of Messiah. And that's going to cause heartache to them. Because the whole nation, everything could have been resolved in the first century. You didn't have to have a holocaust during World War II. They didn't have to experience all the anti-Semitism for 2,000 years. So, it could be repentant Israel because of Zechariah 12. In fact, let's look up Zechariah 12. Somebody want to get that one? Okay, David. Uh, let's read Revelation 6 because... This is a passage, and remember, this is at that same time frame. This is the later verses of that sixth seal 
And just preceding it is that description of the sun being darkened and the moon, etc. And notice on that occasion, it refers to unbelievers. You got that one, Juliana? Yes. The king of the earth and world... The kings, plural. And rich men and high-ranking military officers and all men, great and small, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves... And, and rocks of the mountains, and cried to the mountains to crush them. Fall on us, they pleaded, and hide us from the face of the one sitting on the throne, and from the anger of the Lamb, because the great day of their anger has come, and who can survive it? Okay. They're aware of what's happening. It's a picture of depravity. Even in the midst of knowing... Who is present, the wrath of the Lamb, and what is going on, they still do not repent, they do not trust in Jesus Christ. And there's another passage, very similar to that one, that occurs later on. Just the defiance of the human heart, the depravity, and the rejection of Christ in the midst of very clear revelation concerning His holiness and probably even His provision. So they may be the ones that are mourning because they have lost everything. Everything is gone. But Zechariah, which I think Jesus is probably pulling a portion out of it, some of the phrases out of Zechariah, I think Jesus is using, and I think you have an indication of that in Matthew chapter 24. Let's read that one, and then we're going to have to conclude. Zechariah 10 through 12. And I will pour upon the house of David, coming to the of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace... The supplications. They shall look on me, who may appear, and they shall mourn for him, as one mourneth for his only son. There shall be a bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And in that day there should be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as in the morning they had driven in the valley of the hills. The land shall mourn every family of hearts. David, the wives, and the family of the house of David, heart. Okay. I think it's the same context. I think Jesus is taking the Zechariah passage, but the context is in the midst of the repentance of Israel, Israel mourning. And probably the best suggestion is that both are probably in view. Because we're talking about all tribes, kind of the universal aspect. Unbelievers and believers, it's going to be a time of mourning, a time of mourning for those that are repentant, recognizing that they could have had everything that they're receiving now much earlier, not only historically, but even personally. And I think Revelation 1-7 seems to combine the Zechariah passage with another passage that's alluded to in the same context that we'll look at next week. So we'll take a look at that next week. Closing thought. We can praise our Lord. This is going to be a glorious display of all that he is, that we can comprehend at least. So praise our Lord for his glorious coming. It will be unimaginable. Who wants to close for us? Connie. Amen.